0: I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that He's living whatever men may say. Aren't you glad we serve a risen Savior today? What a blessing it is. Thank you, team. Take your Bible this morning, if you have one, and turn to Matthew chapter 7. I want us to uh, look this morning at what we call the fruit life. If you have that little green book, you can turn to page 24. If you've not been with us, you have a handout. Matthew um, chapter 7. Matthew 7 is a Passages that we call the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It's the most famous message ever preached. Um, Jesus spoke this. There's three discourses in the book of Matthew, and this is one of those. Stand with me if you would. and we'll read a few verses here out of Matthew 7. This is kind of toward the end of um, Jesus's address here. Obviously, it wasn't divided into chapter and verses when he spoke it, but we're going to pick it up toward the end. Matthew 7. Let's start at verse number 13. Matthew 7, verse 13. It says, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, the way is broad, the leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. What does that mean? That means basically it's very easy to get to hell. It's a broad road, the gate's wide, do nothing, you'll get there. Verse 14, for the gate is small, the way is narrow, the leads to life, and there are few who find it. Hell will be a crowded place, heaven will not. There is a narrow gate, behind that narrow gate there is a narrow way. People say, you're so narrow to say there's only one way to heaven. I'm as narrow as this book. Jesus said there's one God, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Narrow gate, narrow way. And then then he gives them a little warning in verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in steep clothing, but anyway, they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their works. Is that what your Bible says? What does your Bible say? Yeah, mine does too. Don't let me do that to you now, okay? Grapes not gathered from thorn bushes or fruits and thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good works. What is it? Oh, yeah, fruit. Every bad tree bears bad works. Oh, fruit, yeah. A good tree cannot produce bad works. Fruit. Nor can a bad tree produce good works. Fruit, yeah. Every tree that does not bear good works Oh, fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. So then you will know them by their works, oh, by their fruits. Yeah, what's the difference between a fruit and a work? We'll talk about that here in just a moment. Before we do, I want to ask you to take a little exercise. I'm going to let you do something that. You do anyway, talk in church. Uh, But we're gonna do it on purpose. Uh, I want you to turn to the person on either side or someone around you, two people, in a moment, I want you to ask them two questions. Don't do it until I tell you, but here's here's the two questions. First of all, I want you to turn to somebody here in just a moment and say to them, are you spiritually alive? Now, now when someone asks you that question, if you're not, just say, no, I'm spiritually dead, then you can end right there. But, But if there is spiritual life, if they are spiritually alive, if they know that, there's another life living inside of them. Here's the second question. Then tell me three evidences to let you know you're spiritually alive. Nathan, are you physically alive this morning? Tell me three ways you know you're physically alive the hearts beating. Hearts beating. Lungs you what? Lungs, are lungs, okay, pumping. And, and you can see, okay, right. So I mean, it's pretty easy to say that Nathan is alive because he is, right? So we can give evidence to that. I don't know how you know your lungs are pumping, but that's, that's okay. But you feel air going in and out. Bad breath, that's it, you got bad breath, right? That's it. Okay, anyway, so, so we, we can know because he's alive. If we're spiritually alive, it should be equally as easy to give evidence of our spiritual life, right? So right now, turn to two people. Before you sit down, ask them those two questions. Are you spiritually alive? If so, tell me three evidences that let you know that. You turn to two people, ask them those two questions. Wow, it got quiet. All right, you can be seated. I was in a church in Illinois, and I asked them to do that. And uh, like this whole section right here was largely senior adults. And as soon as I asked them to do that, this whole section just sat down like this. And the next day, the pastor said, Steve, that's pretty, you know, that's really difficult what you asked us to do. wait a minute. I asked you to talk about God in church, that was, that was really difficult. That was really, you know, that's, that's tough you know for some of us. Why is that so uncomfortable? And, and what is the difference between a fruit and a work? The, the difference is this, a fruit is something you can't produce. A work is something you can make. You, you can, this, this building is the work of men's hands. Men made this building, but you can't make an apple. And a lot of times the evidences that we give of our salvation are works instead of fruit. I've asked that question to a lot of folks, um, how they know if they're saved, if they're spiritually alive, or the the EE question, if you were to die today and stand before God, and he was to say to you, why shall I let you into heaven, what would you say? That's a great question. What are the evidences of that? And when you ask people those questions, a lot of times, what what you get are, I'll, I'll call them false trusts. A lot of times you have people that will say things, well, I, I know I am saved because, now, a lot of this is not on your sheets, don't worry about it, we'll get there eventually. Uh, I, I know I'm saved because I believe Jesus was real. Now, Christians believe Jesus was real, but just believing that does not mean that you're a Christian. I was out in California, we were out there at some meetings, and our, one of our sons had an eye issue, and we had to go to an emergency room, and so we're there waiting for the x-rays to come back, and the technician was a Hindu. And we we're talking about religion. And I said, and as we talked, he told me that he believed Jesus was real. In fact, he even believed that Jesus was God. He, but the problem is he also believed that Muhammad was God, Buddha was God, Krishna was God. He believed Jesus was a God. So, so just believing that Jesus is real and believing he's God does not mean that you're a Christian. So I, I know I'm saved because I know what the Bible says about salvation. That's good. The former ruler of the USSR, Nikita Khrushchev, years ago, said that he memorized, almost memorized Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He read it so many times. He said he read it because he wanted to know his enemy. Well, just reading the Bible, if he read the book of John, he knew what the Bible said about salvation. That didn't mean he's a Christian. I know him saved because I was in this service one time, and they said, if you want to get saved, come forward. It's fine to walk forward in a service. But just coming down the altar, praying a prayer, that, that doesn't make you a Christian. You can, you can wear the carpet out from the front to the back and still be lost. I, I know I'm saved because I prayed this prayer. It's, Christians should pray. If you were here um, last Thursday, I challenge you to get up the next five mornings, spend your first moments with God. Hope you're doing that. Hope you prayed before you came here. I hope you pray. Christians pray. But just praying does not mean that you're a Christian. Some say, well, I, I, I know I'm saved because I invited Christ into my life. Yet actually, it's really about you responding to His invitation. We have made this thing so self-centered. It's all about what I do. I accepted Jesus. You know, I, I, I tried drugs, I tried sex, and I'm going to try Jesus. It, it's actually Him accepting you. When did that happen in your life? People say, "I, I know I'm saved because I, cr- I have this great cry. Find the cry. But just having some emotional tantrum does not mean that you're a Christian. So, I know I'm saved because my parents told me I was saved. Ask them." I think some of us have this wrong view of eternity. We've watched too many lawyer movies, and, and because God is a judge, we kind of get this you know, courtroom setting, and we think the bailiff is gonna say, all rise, and so we're all gonna you know, watch the judge as he comes and takes the bench, and then we're gonna start calling our witnesses. and So we're gonna call a call pastor and say, Pastor, no, now, now come tell God about what a great church member I was. All the money I gave, missions I went on, okay, thank you, Pastor. Now, Mom and Dad, you take the stand. Now, Mom and Dad, tell God about that time when I was nine years old when I prayed that prayer. Tell God about that. It's not gonna be a courtroom scene as such. God is a judge. He'll open a book, it's called The Lamb's Book of Life. If your name is not there, it doesn't matter what the pastor says, what your parents say. All that matters is what God knows. And and so, whenever I talk to someone about their salvation, I, I never tell people I think you're saved because I don't know their heart. Your parents don't know your heart. Just because you wrote something in your Bible or because somebody told you that everything was okay does not mean it's real. So I know I'm saved because I was baptized. I joined the church. It's great, Christians should get baptized. One of the first steps of obedience is to follow him in baptism, but baptism does not save you. Baptism just pictures what happens at salvation. You can go in that baptismal tank, a dry, lost sinner, and come up a wet, lost sinner. I mean, standing in a baptismal tank does not make you a Christian any more than standing in a garage doesn't make you a car. It's not the location. It's what's happening in your heart, that you should be baptized, you should join a church. That would make you a Christian. So I know I'm because I read my Bible, and Christians should read their Bible. But just reading the Bible doesn't I mean you're a Christian. I was outside of Tampa some time ago, and a 65-year-old lady came to give a testimony one night. She said, she said, 25 years ago, I went to an evangelistic meeting with my sister. At the close of the service, my sister went forward. Well, she was my ride, so I followed her down the front. (laughs) We sat down in the front row, and there was a man talking to my sister. I was sitting one chair away, and he was kind of explaining some things to her, and I was kind of half listening. He said to my sister, would you like to pray this prayer? He said, yes, and then he said to me, would you like to pray this prayer? I said, sure, so I prayed the prayer he told me to pray. We got through, he said, you're now a Christian. He said, if you'll get a Bible and read it through every year, you'll grow in your Christian life. She said, that was 25 years ago. Every year, for the last 25 years, I've read my Bible through. I wonder how many people here have read their Bible through 25 times. She said, but this week, I met Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. She, she'd read the Bible through 25 times, but she never had met the author of the Bible. So I, I know I'm saved uh, because there, there are times where I'm, I'm always here. I've been here every night this week. I, every time the doors are open, I am here. And Christians want to be in the house of God with the people of God doing the things of God. That, that isn't that people, the Christians want to do that. But just going to church... Just being here this week, just being back tonight, just, go, just doing that does not mean that you're a Christian. The fact is, there's a lot of people, in fact, a majority of people, I believe, who are in church this morning will not be in heaven, if you include all denominations. We have a form of godliness, but, but we don't have a relationship. So I know I'm a Christian, Steve, because I, I witness, I've been on mission trips, I have led people to the Lord. That's great. But you can be lost and still do that. The founder of our ministry was raised in the home of an evangelist. And so as a young teenage boy, he knew the Bible. His mother drilled it into him. And as a lost teenager, the year before he got saved, he led 38 people to Christ. Because he knew how to take this book and how to show people in this book what God said and and see them come to Christ when all the time was not real in his own life. I wonder how many people here have ever talked to 38 people about Christ. All those things are good things to do, but those do not mean that you are a Christian. So I, I want us to understand, first of all, the simple gospel, and then take a little quiz. Do you understand the gospel? Paul said this, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So let me, let me give you the basics of the gospel as simply as I can define it. Do you understand this? First of all, I know I am a sinner. I can make no contribution to my salvation. You gotta understand, first of all, we've all sinned. We fall short of God's glory. There's, there's a chasm between us and God that we cannot bridge. How many of you have ever been to the Grand Canyon? Have you been to the Grand Canyon? The Grand Canyon is an amazing place. It's a huge hole in the ground. It's like from 11 to 18 miles across. Let's just say that I decided to have a contest to see who could jump the farthest across the Grand Canyon. Okay, that's gonna be the, the test. I, I, was, uh, when I was in high school, I, I ran track and uh, I did the pole vault and it was right next to the long jump pit. So we would mess around all the time. I don't know how far I could jump, but let's just say in my prime, in, at my best, let's say I could go 10 feet. So I'm gonna be the first contestant. All the stands are set up and I, I take a run and I leap out over the Grand Canyon. I go 10 feet out. Everyone applauds, I have the record, 10 feet. Now I go a mile down, splat, right? Now my next contestant is gonna be a guy named Bob Beeman. You know, there, there are some records that just, sh- in sports world, they just shatter everything, You're like Michel, Mi- Mickey Mantle Mickey, Mickey Mantle, Mickey Mouse, uh, Mickey Mantle hitting a 565-foot home run. Or, or Tiger Woods uh, winning the US Open by 15 strokes, or Secretary winning the Belmont Stakes by 33 lengths. I mean, just, just things that kind of just shatter everything. But maybe the, a record that, that has shattered everything the most, the most dramatic one, is in the running long jump. In, in 1968, the record was 27 feet 4 and 3 4 inches. And Bob Beeman went down to Mexico City. People, people said, can anyone ever jump 28 feet? Is it even humanly possible? I mean, in the last 33 years prior to this event, the 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 record only inched up like eight and a half inches in, in 33 years, and and so so he takes off, and he doesn't just break the world's record. He doesn't just jump 27 feet. He jumps 28 feet, two and a half inches. I mean, just shatters it. Incredible. So he's my next contestant. So Bob, in his prime, takes off across the Grand Canyon. He goes 29 feet, two and a half inches. Everyone applauds. He goes a mile down. Splat. That record stood until 1991. It's still the current world's record. In Tokyo, Mike Powell he jumps, he jumps out not 29 feet, four and a half inches. And so he's the next, and everyone breaks the record, a new world's record. Mile down, splat. Now, no, what's the point? It doesn't matter how far you can humanly jump. No one is ever gonna jump across the Grand Canyon. It's 11 miles across. It's not gonna happen. And, and, and sometimes, I think the situation for us is, is we're seeing, you know, man, I'm, I'm pretty good, but it doesn't matter how good you are, you'll never bridge the gap between you and God in your own righteousness. My, my wife was the first one converted in her family. They had gone to a church when she grew up that didn't preach the gospel, and uh, they had a falling out, started going to another church, and they did preach the gospel. And she responded to that. And then her dad and, and other family members, the last holdout was her mom. I don't understand mother-in-law jokes. I had the dearest, sweetest mother-in-law you could imagine. She passed away a few years ago. But she was a great lady. Before she got saved, she was a great lady. She didn't drink. She didn't smoke. She didn't curse. She was loyal to her husband. She was involved in all kinds of civic activities. So when the pastor said, you need to be saved, she thought, saved from what? She was better than most people in the church. She would have been the Mike Powell of long jumping. She could have jumped the farthest across the chasm between her and God. She would have jumped the farthest of anybody that I know as a lost person. But she would only have gone 30 feet because the chasm, there's, no one bridges that gap. Our righteousness will never be enough to bridge the gap between us and God. And then finally came a day when my mother-in-law realized that all of her goodness, all of her righteousness was like filthy rags. And she, too, humbled herself and admitted that she had a need. But until you understand there's nothing you can do to bridge that gap, you're not going farther. The second part of the gospel, you understand, is I must receive Christ the Son because He alone is the righteousness that God the Father accepts. He is the one who bridges that gap. It is not. We talked about this verse yesterday if you were here with us uh, and, uh, as adults uh, with, the, with the parenting thing. It is not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he has saved us. It's not because of anything that we can do. The the chasm is great, but Christ has bridged that, and he is the righteousness that God accepts. Not ours, but his. Here's the third aspect of the gospel. I think we're missing this one. Am I willing to turn from my sin? This is repentance. We don't don't wanna talk about repentance in our culture. It's not mentioned in a lot of churches because it's not real enjoyable. What does it mean to repent? Repentance is a change of my mind that results in a change of my direction. The Greek word is metanoia, it's a military term, it's an about face. It means I'm heading in one direction, I stop, I repent, I do an about face, and I head in a different direction. When did that happen to you? When was there a change of your mind that resulted in a change of your direction? Jesus said in Luke 13, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And, and we don't want to turn. We want to add God to our life. We want to have him come along with us in our mess. He says, no, I want you to stop and turn. And, and here comes the, the fourth thing. The gospel involves this. It's believing in and receiving Jesus Christ, the Lord, for all that he is. Jesus Christ, the Lord. Jesus speaks the, of the fact that he is all man. He is our substitute. He was able to go to the cross, but he was also all man and all God at the same time. How do you explain that? I, I can't. He was my savior he, because he was God. He is my substitute. He was all God, all man, and he was also Jesus Christ, the Lord. He is the supreme authority. And when you receive him, you receive him for all that he is, not just your savior. Certainly he is that, but he is also the supreme authority of your life. It's acknowledging that he is all God, all man, and he is all Lord. He is Jesus Christ, the Lord. And you receive him for all that he is. So, so as simply as I can distill it down, I would say this. I know Christ died for my sin. I receive his gift of life. I repent and turn from my sin, and I believe he is my Lord. That's as simple as I can distill the gospel. He's the Lord. Now, how do I know whether or not I, I am in that condition. Here, here's my prayer in these next few moments. Paul said this, test yourselves, examine yourselves, and see if you're in the faith, unless you indeed fail the test. So, so my question this morning, what is the credible evidence of your salvation? Paul said you need to examine your own life. See if you really are in the faith. If, if what you've been founding your life on is a bunch of works You'll know them by their fruits, Jesus said. So let's talk about the fruits. Sixth question. This is the most important test you'll ever take in your entire life. Here's the first question. It's simply this. Do you have an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ? I don't mean you know who he is. I don't mean you know about him. I mean, do you have an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ? The Bible says in First John four thirteen. by this we know that we abide in him and he in us. I know Donald Trump. Never met him before. Never been in the same room that he is. But I think if he walked in that door, I could say, wow, there's the president-elect. I, I, I've seen enough, heard enough. So, so I know Donald Trump in that way. I also know Debbie Canfield, my wife. I've known her for 40 years. I know what she likes, what she dislikes, what makes her happy, sad. We have spent 40 years together. The way I know my wife is vastly different than the way I know Donald Trump. And some of us know God the way we know the president. We know who he is. We know his job, his title. But we never had a conversation with him. We don't have a relationship with him. Sure, we know him because we've seen, we've heard, but we have no relationship. And some of us know God the way we know the president. We know his position, his title. would recognize him in a crowd. But we've never had an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus said this, My sheep hear my voice. I know them. And they they follow me. Do you know the voice of God? I'm not talking about audible voices. Uh, I'm talking about the fact that when you are are prompted by God's Spirit, He indwells us, lives inside of us. And by the way, that passage in John 10, Jesus said this, when when you get saved, God places you in in the Father's hand, and no man can pluck you out of God's hand. People say, what that means is once saved, always saved. I think a better way to find that is this. What it means is that if a person is genuinely saved, they will persevere in their salvation. Some people say, yeah, I I prayed that prayer 40 years ago, lived like the devil the rest of my life, but, you know, I, I got those magical words sometime back that time, and so everything's okay. And a lot of people that are claiming salvation have no clue of what a relationship with Jesus Christ really is. Do, do you know the voice of God? Do you know the promptings of the Holy Spirit? Do you follow, my sheep hear my voice, I know them and they follow me. They didn't just pray a prayer 30 years ago to get out of hell. There, there is a, a, an upward progression in their life. Do you have an intimate relationship? Have you talked to him today? Did you get up this morning and, and you say he's your savior, you say he's the most important person in the world and some of you went the whole week and didn't even talk to him, really? He's the most important person in your life? I don't think so. Here's the second question. It's the love test. First John was written to a group of people to give him assurance of salvation. And there's a lot of evidences of salvation there. And, and, and so John says this in 1 John 2, 15, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So, so what do you love? Do you love God more than the things this earth? If you wanted me to evaluate your life, I'm sure you don't, but if you wanted me to evaluate your life, I'd ask you to show me two things. You show me your calendar and your checkbook. And I can tell you what you love. You can say you love Jesus, you can say you love the church, say whatever you want, but where do you spend your time and where do you spend your money, that is what you love. And and we can say one thing here, but the evidence is what we do. What what do you really love? What, What is the evidence in your life of what you love? You got up this morning, what, what who'd you spend time with? What, what, what do you love? Here, here's the third question. It's the sin test. It's simply this, when you sin, do you sense conviction and chastisement that leads to repentance? Unfortunately, or fortunately, this is one way I know I'm a Christian. Because when I sin, God convicts me. He, he, he won't let me off the hook because He loves me. He cares about me. We talked yesterday about spanking your kids. I don't spank other people's kids. It's not my job. I spanked my kids. My, my daughter got married a couple months ago. When she was a toddler, let's say she's crawling over towards a, the wall, there's an electrical outlet there. So I say, Anna, now listen, in this wall, there's electricity. It's in the wires, comes down to this little plug. And if you stick that fork that you have in that plug, it's gonna hurt you because you're gonna get shocked. And, and so I do not want you to play around electrical outlets. So I explained this to her, to this little toddler. And so I walk away, and she's crawling toward the plug again. Now, what am I going to do? I'm going to spank her. Why? Because I love her? Because I hate her? No, because I love her. I, don't, I like her the way she was. I don't want her to be some crispy critter. I, I want her the way she was, right? She didn't understand all that as a toddler, but as a father, I care enough to discipline my child. And, and God loves us as his children. And so when when we're walking down as in Pilgrim's Progress in Vanity Fair and we walk down the wrong road about to walk off a cliff, he's gonna spank us, why? He cares about us, he don't want us walking off a cliff. If you can sin and not know the discipline and chastisement of God in your life, you're not his child. If you're his child, he's gonna care enough about you to love you enough to keep you from doing those things or to discipline you so you'll change. And if you can sin and not know the conviction of God in your life, it's because you're you're not his child. So, so let me ask you a couple of questions about that. Is, is there a conviction that leads you to repentance, or are you unresponsive to the problem of sin as you know it already in your life? When Mark or Nathan stand and they say, share, here's what the word of God says. And and and, and is it having effect on you? Are you unresponsive to God Himself? Not to a belief in God, but I mean to the leading of God. Are you responsive to the Word of God? When the book is, this book is open and when your pastors stand and they say, thus saith the Lord, does it have any impact on you? You know, I, I, it's, it's amazing to me that there, there are people who, who can talk about everything in the world, come to church, call themselves Christians, can talk about everything in the world except about God. And, I, and I've wondered this. Can you be spiritually alive and not be able to carry on a spiritual conversation. There are some of you who know more of the names of your favorite sports team players than you do the 12 disciples. You, you know more about whatever your job is or, or about politics or, or whatever it is. And you can talk about politics to you're blue in the face. You can talk about your sports team, you, whatever. But you start talking about God and all of a sudden, it's like, does that guy even know how to talk? For some, the only time you open this book is when the preacher says, turn to such and such. We were in um, northern Indiana, and there's a deacon in the church who was like a Chicago Bears fanatic. I mean, he ate, drank, slept Chicago Bears. He knew everything past, present, future, but he knew Walter Payton's rushing average and Jim McMahon's passing efficiency. He knew everything. And, and, and every time you talked to him, how about them Bears? How about them Bears? He didn't come the first Monday night because they were on Monday night football, and he didn't want to miss the opening kickoff. The, the, a Sunday just like this, this deacon got saved. I, I want to tell you something. You want to be a good deacon? It really helps to be a Christian. He, he realized he was lost. That night, I was talking to him. You know what? He wasn't talking about the Bears. Now, there's nothing wrong with the Bears. Well, there's a lot of things wrong with the Bears. But there, there, there's nothing wrong with football, okay? I like football. But, but he, had, he had nothing to say that night what he was talking about, what Christ had done in his life. When was the last time you just your conversation went into a lull, and all of a sudden, you want to talk about Jesus? Can you even carry on a spiritual conversation? If you're lost, I would not expect you to. Are you unresponsive to holiness? Do you have a desire to be holy? The Bible says the inner man delights to do the will of the Father. If there's no desire for holiness in your life, you're not a Christian. I'm not saying you're always going to be holy. I'm not. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying there'll be a desire for that. And if you have no desire, if it doesn't motivate you, if holiness is not something you want, you're not a Christian. Are are you unresponsive to the reality of hell? Do you you realize that hell is a real place? Regardless of what Rob Bell says, it's a real place where the worm dieth not, where the fire is not quenched. And do you realize there are people sitting on the row you're seated in right now that unless God intervenes in their life, will spend eternity in the devil's hell? Does that even phase you? We're coming up to Thanksgiving and Christmas. Some of you are gonna gather together with people in these next couple of weeks, you see once or twice a year. People you say are important, relatives, friends, loved ones, and you've never one time told them about Christ. Never one time told them about supposedly the greatest thing in your life. And if you really believed in the reality of hell, you would at least go to the people you love the most and talk to them. So you've seen them year after year after year, and never one time have you warned them, have you shared with them about the great news of the gospel, the great news of Christ in you. Are you really saved? Can you, can you really be saved and really understand hell and not want to tell people you love about Christ? Are you unresponsive to change? Are you changed by the things you profess to believe? You say, oh, yeah, I believe all those things, but does it affect your life? So, so here's the question, are, are you really a believer? Can you really be a believer and have no conversation, no understanding on, on, on daily basis about things that are the most important? It goes along here with the next one, it's the repentance test. Is your life characterized by repentance? I was adopted into God's family at the age of nine. I didn't say in my prayer, I repent of my sin, probably. I don't remember. Probably didn't know that word. At the age of nine, I gave everything I knew about me to everything I knew about God. See, how how would you know that you repented? Here's what repentance is. Repentance is saying, God, anything in my life that is sin, anything you show me in the future to be sin, I give it all up for you. Is that your attitude right now? Repentance is not a one-time act. It's a lifestyle. Is your attitude right now, God, anything in my life that is sin, anything you show me in the future to be sin, I'll give it all up for you. Repentance didn't just happen at a point in the past. Repentance is a continuum. Is your life characterized by repentance? Jesus said there twice in Luke 13, if you do not repent, if you do not turn from your sin, you're going to perish. So So where is God finds you in that? Is there been, as there ever a time that you repented? Now, here's what i found. A person cannot be saved until they admit that they are lost. And some of us, the thing we need to repent of is the pride that says, I can't admit that I'm lost. There's a prayer, some of you have prayed 50 times, 100 times, it's a meaningless prayer, but many pray it over and over again. Here's the prayer, it means nothing, dear God, If I've never been saved, save me now. That's a worthless prayer. Here's what that says. God, I'm not going to admit that I'm lost. I'm not going to tell anybody. I'm not going to get baptized again. I'm not going to acknowledge I've been living a lie. That would be too embarrassing, but I'm I'm feeling a little guilty right now. So just in case it didn't work the first 50 times I prayed this, one more time, I believe you're God. I believe you died on the cross. Come into my heart, save me. Amen. That, That is a meaningless prayer. Because you're not willing to admit that you're a lost, hellbound sinner. You won't, I tell you that the we travel all over the country. The, the most difficult thing about the South is not getting people saved, it's getting them lost. Because everybody's saved in the South. They live in the South, they live in the Bible Belt. Their, their uncle was a preacher, they go to church. And it's, it's getting people to acknowledge that they're lost, hellbound sinners and they're not just a Christian because they've gone to church all their life. And until you admit, God, I am a lost, hellbound sinner in need of a Savior, you will not be saved. Tells you, said it this way if you will not turn from your sin, you'll not turn to Christ. And the sin we will not turn from is the sin of our pride. This 65 year old lady I talked about, it was embarrassing for her. She taught Sunday school class, she was 65. And to say, I've been lost, I've been going through the motions all these time but th- that was difficult but the realization that that was what it needed for her to be saved, to realize that she was lost and to acknowledge that, and the freedom that came as a result of that. But some of us are just going to say, I'm I'm not going to admit that. What would people think of me? Listen, one day it'll be you and God. It won't matter what anybody else thinks about you. All that matters is what God knows. Have you ever repented of your sin? And is that the attitude of your heart right now? Here's the Probably most important, the Lordship test. Maybe not, but it's important. Have you completely surrendered to Jesus Christ as the master and Lord of your life? Here's what I found. A lot of people have sat in a service where somebody said, if you want to go to heaven, raise your hand. Well, who doesn't want to go to heaven? I've only met one person in my life who didn't want to go to heaven. We were down in Louisiana during Mardi Gras one year, meetings, and so we went out and we started passing out tracts on the street. And I had a a track, and a a gal came to me. She's all dressed in black like a cat. And I I handed her a track. I said, this will tell you how to get to heaven. She looked me in the eye, and she said, I want to go to hell. Other than her, I've never met somebody who wanted to go to hell. And and, and here's what happened. Somebody sat in that service and said, if you want to go to heaven, raise your hand. Every child will raise their hand, certainly. Only a fool wants to go to hell. And, and Jesus Christ is our Savior, but you confess Him for all that He is, Jesus Christ the Lord. He is, he is certainly our Savior, but He is also believing that He is who He says He is. Listen, the devils believe He's God, but they will not believe He is Lord. They, they, they believe so much, James says, it causes them to tremble. The devils do but, but for you, it's coming to a place where you say, yes, I believe it in who he is, but I also want him to be the Lord, the master, the boss, the controller of my life. When did that happen to you? See, any salvation there's not ultra a lifestyle of sin, does not transform the heart of a sinner, is not the lifestyle that God's talking about, that God's Word talks about. And for salvation, a person must trust Christ as savior from sin, yes, but also commit themselves to Christ as the Lord of their life, submitting to his sovereign authority. This is not works. Works are not necessary for salvation, but, but, but true salvation will not fail to produce good works. You don't make Christ Lord. He is Lord. And any faith that rejects his sovereign authority is, is really unbelief. you said this, The Lord will not save those he cannot command. And if you've said, yeah, I want the the ticket to heaven, but I don't want some God running my life, then you know nothing about biblical salvation. Now, here, here is the most important test, I believe, and it's the spirit test. At this very moment, is the Holy Spirit of God giving you peace and assurance that you know for sure you're a genuine child of God? 1 John 3, 24 says, Hereby we know that he abideth in us by the spirit he hath given us. If you're saved, my prayer right now is that God's Holy Spirit, who indwells you, if you're saved, is giving you peace and calm and assurance and you know that you know that you know. But if you're not saved, that the spirit of God is bringing about conviction in your heart. Romans eight sixteen says the same thing. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. God's Holy Spirit, if you're saved, lives in you. And, and, so, and we, we understand, you know, the basics of all this. We understand that, that you know, the wage of sin is death. We understand John three sixteen. 16, God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, whosoever believeth in Him. What does it mean to believe? Not just to believe He exists, the devil does that, but to believe that He is who He says He is, receiving Him as the master, the controller of the Lord. It, it, it's affirming that He is that person. And saving faith has at its heart a willingness to obey. Now, let me just let me say, no one seeks after God. The Bible's very clear about that. Romans 3.11, there's none that seeks after God. Salvation is a God-given commitment of your will. God gives you the faith to believe who he is. He gives you the faith to believe that Jesus is God's son. He gives you faith to believe the gospel. He gives you faith to believe that Christ was buried and rose again. Salvation is a free gift, but it will cost you everything. It is only for those who are willing to enjoy Christ as first place in their life. When did that happen to you? Now, now turn back to Matthew chapter 7. We'll close with this. As you look at these, these questions, as you think through for your own life, do you have an intimate relationship with Christ? Do you love Christ more than the things of the world? Do you sense conviction and chastisement? Is your life characterized by repentance? Have you completely surrendered to Jesus Christ as the master and Lord? And at this very moment, do you have that inward peace and assurance? The fact is, there's many of you this morning that, that could not answer those questions right. And, and you're gonna be, unless something happens, in the saddest verse in the Bible. Look at verse 21. Not everyone, this is Jesus speaking, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Just because somebody says they're a Christian, just because they say he's my Lord, does not mean they're going to get to heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many, verse 21, or verse 22, many, not just an isolated few, many will say to me on that day, what day is this? It's judgment day. There are two judgments in Scripture, the great white throne and the judgment seat of Christ. Judgment seat of Christ is for believers. Great white throne is for the lost of all ages. This is the great white throne judgment. The lost of all ages, Adolf Hitler, Saddam Hussein, Osama bin Laden, the villains of all the ages, and every other person apart from Christ is standing in this vast sea. And many are saying, Lord, you remember me? Lord, Lord, you remember me? We prophesied in your name. Preachers. You mean there's gonna be preachers in hell? Sure there are. I think there are more preachers that will be in hell than will be in heaven, if you include all denominations. Just because you're a preacher, we were in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. I'd shared something similar to this, and at the close, a man came and said, "Can I say something?" And he said before the group, and he said, "I'm a, I'm a pastor. I've been a pastor 12 years. I resigned my church and up north, and I was coming to another church where I was going to start. And we're traveling on Sunday, so we just saw the church we're at happened to be on a freeway and we just happened to come in this morning. He said, I realized this morning why I've been so ineffective for the last 12 years. This morning I met Jesus Christ as my personal savior. We were in back-to-back meetings on the Atlantic side of Florida, and between these two churches, five staff members or their wives got saved. Just because you're a deacon, bi-faction team member, staff member, Sunday school teacher, singing the choir, doesn't mean you're a Christian. In your name, cast out demons, it says, exorcists. People who seem to have the apparent power of God in their life to exorcise a demon. It's like, I'm glad I'm not a preacher, glad I'm not an exorcist. The next phrase catches the rest. And in your name, perform many miraculous works. Oh, there's that word. Here's the tragedy. I I can almost understand someone like Saddam Hussein and Adolf Hitler. I can almost understand someone like that going to hell, almost. But you know the tragedy I have? That every Sunday morning, I look in the faces of people that are not mass murderers and Saddam Hussein's and whatever else, good people, and realize that some people right here this morning are gonna sit in this very verse, and they're gonna hear the saddest verse in the Bible, verse 23, I believe, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me you who practice lawlessness.